thing for me to do is to get you. What's happening, everybody? I'm Andrew George. Welcome to the Off the Wall Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Michael Smith. We got a lot of cool topics to hit on today. Um, talk some football, baseball, basketball. Um, and so, yeah, let's just hop right into it. Uh, first off, Mike, how you feeling? I know the uh, BW Wi-Fi is a little bit kind of messed up right now, but uh, we're still making this work. So uh, what's what's going on? What's life on campus like right now? Yeah, I am actually doing this from my hotspot. So if I cut out, just continue on without me. Um, I'll be a fallen soldier at that point, but you got to finish the show. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, yeah, the Wi-Fi is down, but it should be all right on my hotspot. Uh, I guess word on the streets is that there's a pretty big game coming up this Sunday. So I guess we'll talk about it. Got some baseball hall stuff, some hoops action going on, potential trades. Ooh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously our Cleveland segment always wraps up the show. So I'm looking forward to it. You're looking forward to it. You listening are looking forward to it. So let's get after it. Oh, look at the! I love the energy you're bringing. This is a high energy episode right from the get go. Uh, I, I think the Super Bowl. Um, that's something people watch, right? Yeah, that's on Sunday. Uh, so I guess we'll talk Super Bowl stuff. Um, any cool storylines you got to start? We'll kind of exchange some and then uh, get into the matchup. Well, yeah. So the obvious one is obvious. Obvious. Yes, the obvious one is obvious, of course. Sorry, mixed up my words there. But um, the obvious storyline is that you have Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes going up against each other, the young stallion versus the old goat. I mean, it's ridiculous that Brady is showing up in his 10th Super Bowl. 18% of Super Bowls in NFL history have featured Tom Brady. So, I mean, if that doesn't speak to his greatness, I don't know what does. For some reason, when you appear in 10 Super Bowls, you're considered the goat. But when you do that in the finals, you're not. But that's a topic Hmm. for another day. Interesting. Um, Right. Good comp. I thought so. Um, This is Mahomes' second Super Bowl. I would argue it should probably be his third if uh, Ford doesn't line up offside. So I guess then Brady would have nine still, nonetheless. This should be a heck of a matchup from that standpoint. Um, I know how I broke down the game itself. I kind of compared each category like offense and defense for each team. But before I do that, I'll turn it over to you to what your appealing storylines are. But for me, this is all about the quarterbacks um, because this is a matchup of one all-time great. And who knows, it could be a second all-time great here over the next decade or so. Yeah, I think it's crazy just to think you have Mahomes is 25 and Brady's 43. I mean, that's an 18-year age difference and both of them are still elite. Um, so like you mentioned, like the future of the league versus the old goat. And it's that in itself is obviously, um, I mean, that's the most appealing thing. I'm, I'm kind of glad Kansas city won just because I think this matchup is probably the best that we could have seen. Um, just given all the teams that are left in the um, conference championships, but I digress. I think, um, a couple other things that are interesting are, um, Jason Pierre, Paul, if, um, Tampa wins, he, he would be the third player to win a title with Brady while also beating him previously. Uh, hmm. The other two, you want, you want to guess the other two? Oh, they're, they're, no, they're like well-known players. Um, so okay. it's not like I'm throwing you like a curveball. Yeah, like you, you can probably, I'll give you here. They they played for Philly when he lost to Philly. Oh, oh, what's that dude's name? Oh, man. Is one a lineman, an offensive lineman? Yeah, one of them is one here. One of them is, uh, yeah, one of them, one of them is a lineman and the other one's a running back. Oh, the running back is LeGarrette Blunt. Yeah. Okay. Lineman, I'm going to say either Nate Soldier or Rob Ninkovich. Wait, was That's he a, a lineman? No, he was a linebacker, Rob Ninkovich. 
I don't know what I'm thinking about then. Go on. <laughs> but the other guy was Chris Long. When did he play for the Pats? Honestly, I have no idea. I just huh. I knew he played for the Eagles, but yeah, I guess he was. Uh, I guess on that rotating carousel of past players, but uh, no, I I think that's just sweet. Um, if JPP can like if he, if they actually win, like I just think that stat is ridiculous. But because that just shows how many like obviously you mentioned how many times Brady's been in the Super Bowl, like just the amount of players that he's taken with him to the Super Bowl is uh is crazy which is also weird is that Wes Welker apparently never won a Super Bowl with Brady it felt like he was in New England for like 20 years um but I guess he because he was on those teams that lost to the Giants yeah he um shoot it's too bad they didn't win with Randy Moss because that was an amazing couple years was did Wes Welker win with the Broncos or had he retired by then because at that point in his career I know he was dealing with a ton of concussions well, here's here's what's weird is um what remember so when he went to play with um, Manning in Denver um he actually like didn't win because uh, he wasn't on that team that beat um Cam that one year when Cam won the MVP. Apparently, so he's probably on the team that played Seattle though, but lost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, isn't that crazy, dude? The guy played with Peyton uh, and Brady and went to like a bunch of Super Bowls and kind of just got the short end of the stick. So sorry, Wes Welker, but hey, I mean. Can't win them all, I guess. <laughs> Better to be there than not. So yeah, yeah, probably a good experience. But um, a couple other things I got too. I mean, we touched on a little bit last week. This is a home game for the Bucks, which first time in NFL history. Um, San Francisco came close, I think, in the '80s, uh, but they played in Pasadena, so it wasn't quite um, in their home stadium. So uh, if they were to win, they're already the first team to play at their home um, home stadium. Stadium. If they were to win, then they'd obviously be the first to win there. So. That's something that's got going on. And then I think the coolest thing is um, Sarah Thomas is going to be the first woman to officiate a Super Bowl. And between two, uh, yeah, and between the two coaching staffs, it's actually the most women in on-field roles in Super Bowl than ever before. And it sucks that it's taken um, like this long, like it shouldn't have taken to 2021 to have a woman officiate a Super Bowl. But nevertheless, I mean, uh, it's, it's progression for, from what has been going on years past. No, absolutely. I mean, congratulations to her, too, because I feel like a lot of people's thoughts that are more misogynist is, oh, they're just doing this, you know, so that they represent diversity or gender equality or equity or stuff like that. No, that's not the case. Like, she clearly deserves this role and she earned that role. So, I mean, huge congrats to her. And again, that is monumental for football and I'd say sports in general. So hopefully it's just another step in that progression. But uh, no, that's uh, that's great. Yeah, she's she's been. I think she joined the league as a uh, as an official in 2015. So um, it's like her fifth year in the league. So uh, it's you know it's great. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of hard work. I mean, I know I could never officiate anything. That would just be way too much pressure. So uh, I'd be out of breath after one offensive yeah, series. Yeah, I can't even. Yeah. So I mean, props to her making history and uh, best of luck uh, this upcoming Sunday. So uh, with that. Um, I'll kind of swing it to you. We'll, we'll we'll talk Chiefs first, and then we'll um, swing it over to the Bucks. So I'll let you break some stuff down, and then swing it over to me, and we'll just uh, we'll get into the actual matchup. Well, actually, so the way that I kind of broke it down was I went team by team and decided who I gave the edge to on each side of the ball, and I thought that was my mm-hmm. way of breaking down who I thought would win. So that kind of goes hand in hand with my analysis of both teams. So I'll kind of start yeah, with the sure. offense. 
Um, I actually think both offenses are pretty even here. Now, the way in which they strike is actually, I would say it's quite different. So I feel like Mahomes, his offense is obviously more fast-paced. I mean, they can literally score in four plays in a minute, and like that's happened several times before. Whereas I feel like Brady is killy with a thousand cuts. I mean, his offense is pretty methodical for the most part. But so when you're assessing both quarterbacks, I'd say they're even. You know, you had Mahomes this year through for 4,740 passing yards, 36 touchdowns, six interceptions. Brady threw for 4,633 passing yards, 40 touchdowns, and 12 interceptions. So I think he was really allowed to air it out in Bruce Arians' offense, which speaks to the weapons that he has, right? I mean, he had Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, um, Antonio Brown, if he's healthy for this game, Gronk. And I'm going to throw a name out there, Scotty Miller. I know he only catches the ball like once or twice a game, but it's always some of the biggest catches. They send him out there for deep balls. They're usually like 30-yard or more receptions. Again, go through a stat log. It's only one or two receptions a game, but it always comes in a crucial moment. So he's been huge for them. He actually, he had that at the end of the, um, against Green Bay at the end of the first half that like that 21 22 yard like uh catch down the half like a um, touchdown so yeah dude's lethal he's do you see him and Tyreek Hill going back and forth about like uh who's faster I mean I don't, I don't really think it's a conversation but like I thought that was kind of funny because Scotty Miller's got those jets no he does he does they need to set that up in the offseason but he is definitely a weapon and I mean you spoke to it Kansas City has plenty of their own Tyreek Hill Travis Kelsey, who's had arguably the best offensive season for a tight end. Well, yeah, tight ends only play offense. I meant more from like a receiving standpoint. <laughs> but uh, Sammy Watkins and McCole Hardman, so both are lethal there. My X factor on the offensive side of the ball is actually Leonard Fournette. If he can do what he's been doing all postseason long and running the ball, I think regardless of whether or not Kansas City has a running game, they're still going to be able to score. So on defense, you have to bend, not break. And I'll get into defense um, in a second here. But I think he's the X factor for the Bucks because if you can set up that play-action game for Tom Brady and just give Kansas City more looks to where they're not passing all the time, for me, Leonard Fournette has to have a huge game for the Bucks to win this game. But I do have both offenses as fairly even. The way they attack is just different. And yeah, then, I think. Uh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, uh, so yeah, I just kind of want to go off that point with Leonard Fournette. I think, um, in terms of what Kansas City's defense is going to be facing, is something that they haven't really faced. Uh, well, I mean, they faced it in Cleveland with Chubb and Hunt, but um, they didn't really have to worry about it with Buffalo uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. And I don't know. I think um, Fournette and Jones, like because uh, now that Ronald Jones is back, I think if they have the ability, I think they have the ability to establish the run and. That's just kind of an extra, like you mentioned, uh, an extra dynamic that I don't think KC really had to think about against Buffalo. Um, and you still have Brady and all his weapons. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get the running game going. No, absolutely. And it will be for the Chiefs as well. But like I said, I think it's more crucial for the Bucks Now on defense, I actually give the edge to the Bucks here because they were number one in run prevention during the season. Um, where you do kill them is in the pass, and that's obviously what – the Chiefs do, but I do think that is something. So if the Chiefs even try to run, they'll at least be able to slow that down some. I mean, up front, you have Nadama Kasu, Jason Pierre-Paul, Vita Vea, and Levante David. So they do have guys capable of not only stopping the run, but getting to the quarterback, which the way you beat Mahomes, you can't blitz him because that leaves guys open down the field, but you have to have four dudes that can get pressure on him 
and hit him and hit him, um, you know, actually get a hit on him so that it isn't called pass interference because now you can't touch a quarterback if he after he throws the ball anymore in the NFL. So I think they have dudes that can do that, can pressure him. Um, of course, they have Antoine Winfield and Jordan Whitehead in the secondary too. So they're guys that are capable. And I, I just give them the edge over Kansas City. Kansas City doesn't have a bad defense. The way I would describe them is I think they play situationally well, kind of that bend, not break, and they do – perform for the most part in the biggest parts of the game. Um, just a few dudes to highlight. You have Chris Jones and Frank Clark who do apply a very good pass rush. And then Tyron Matthew may be the best safety in all of football. If not, he's pretty close. But um, that dude has been huge for the Chiefs. I don't know why anyone didn't sign him that wasn't the Chiefs. But good for him. I just I give the slight edge to the Bucks defense in this case, primarily because of their run prevention. And both teams are then capable against the pass. Yeah, I do too. I think um, I do think Kansas City has a bit of an underrated defense. Uh, I agree with you in like in terms of they play situationally, where in the regular season, I mean, you saw them fluctuate a ton and give up uh, a lot of points to offenses that weren't necessarily, I guess, as high powered as they made them look. But and I love Tyron Matthew too. Um, like you mentioned, I think he it wasn't he in, he was in Arizona um, initially, and yeah, I don't know why he was wasn't really like one of the most sought after. That was years. It seems like it was years ago, but. Uh, anyways, I mean, he sets the tone for those guys. Uh, with Tampa, too, I think um, Devin White and Levante David present the biggest challenge that Travis Kelsey will have faced um, this postseason. And I would argue um, they present as big of a challenge as anybody that he would have seen just because of uh, the speed that, like, especially Devin White brings and um, the physicality. So um, love those guys. Antoine Winfield Jr. You touched on. I love him. I mean, He's going to be back. He wasn't there against Green Bay, but he's huge for the secondary. You can even argue, um, I know Bruce Arians has for um, Defensive Rookie of the Year, but uh, nevertheless, I mean, he's just unbelievable. And uh, I'll let you kind of finish your last points, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the offense a little bit on both sides. No, yeah, special teams, I'll just go over briefly. I didn't really look into the numbers for this. I just give the edge to the Chiefs because – all their dudes are fast, so yeah. <laughs> I give them barely the edge on special teams. Both teams are capable. Both have good enough kickers, so if it comes down to that, I mean, they're capable of making their field goals, so I won't really touch on that. Head coach, I also give the edge to the Chiefs, and that's not a slight towards Bruce Arians, but Andy Reid's a Hall of Fame head coach, so it's hard not to do that. Um, I am glad, even though I wanted the 49ers to win last year, It is. I'm just glad he got a Super Bowl because – he, he's an offensive-minded genius. He's a heck of a head coach. It's unfortunate with some of those Philly teams, he was never able to get it done. Um, but, yeah, I would give Bruce Arians the edge there. And then as far as the game itself, you know, the Super Bowl is weird because if you think about it, there's been several times where Brady's been favored and you have a Nick Foles-Eagles that beat him. You had the Giants that beat him twice. So it is weird. And it's funny because in this circumstance, I think the overwhelming majority of people actually pick the Chiefs to win. I know the line favors them by three or three and a half. So my head says I'm going to go with the Chiefs to win the game, but I think I'm going to roll with the Bucks. I think Brady is in a prove-it season. He wants to prove he can win without Belichick, prove he can win in a different system, prove that he can win in a season where there was no preseason, uh, limited training camp opportunities, and he had to get to know all these guys kind of on the fly. And then if it isn't already cemented, for me, he's the greatest of all time. If he wins the Super Bowl, I think the argument is closed and shut. I mean, 
to do that at the age that he's at with a different team after spending over 20 years in one organization, he can't not be. So I'm going to go with my heart over my head. um, And I wouldn't be mad if the Chiefs won by any means. um, But it's not as easy to win that many Super Bowls as people might think. And they're already pegging the Chiefs a dynasty. I think the Bucs are going to throw a blip in there. and I'm going to take them over the Chiefs. Yeah, I think uh, you bring up an interesting point with Brady about, I mean, you had the Belichick or Brady arguments for so many years. And I mean, those aren't, you can't even like bring that up anymore uh, because it's obvious. And I don't know, even if Tampa were to lose, I'll get to my prediction um, after I kind of go through the offense. But I, I don't know. I mean, even uh, even if they lose, it's kind of hard to uh, not even like to not go against him. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of hard to go against him as like being the GOAT because he was already kind of cemented as that in New England. And then he goes, as you mentioned, like to a Bucks team that hadn't made the playoffs in so many years. And yes, they have a lot of talent, but I mean, it's a whole new system, like you said, and having to, as every team did, like really reconvene through Zoom, <laughs> which, or Microsoft Teams, whatever they were using. But um, yeah, I'll get to my prediction in a second, but kind of offensively, I mean, like you said, like this, this is all about the offense. I think it's going to be a shootout from both teams, and that's not a knock to any of their defenses. I just think both offenses are insane. Um, you, we have, yeah, I mean, the Chiefs, we know about Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. You're not going to stop them, I don't think, at all. I think no matter what, the offense is going to put up points. Um, and I don't think Clyde edwards Lair is going to really get anything going, just given the Bucs' um, rushing defense like, has neutralized the run literally all year. So I think... Uh, I think it's cool that, I mean, we talk about how young Mahomes is compared to like Brady's age and experience, but in reality, I mean, he, the last three years, I mean, they've been either on this stage or pretty damn close to the stage. So, I mean, they aren't really strangers and especially Andy Reid. You mentioned those Philly teams, man. I got so excited. I love those, uh, Donovan McNabb, the TO was there for a little bit, Brian Westbrook, Brian Dawkins, all those guys, but I won't get on a Philly tangent, but those teams were so much fun. But, uh, and then on the other side, Tampa, I mean, I, I talked about uh, Leonard Fournette, uh, Ronald Jones, and I just, I think just Brady, um, and in terms of the weapons he's had, I mean, this probably the, in terms of his receiving core, um, and it sucks OJ Howard went down early because he would have had another guy uh, who, who, I mean, is at Brady's disposal. But over the last five games, I mean, that offense has just been clicking on all cylinders. Averaging 36.6 points per game uh, over the last five games, so towards the end of the regular season and then obviously in the postseason. But, I mean, they're rolling. Uh, Antonio Brown's doubtful as of now. It'll be interesting to see if he plays. I know he gets a $750,000 bonus um, if they win, which, I mean, obviously he wants that. So uh, it would be huge to have him play because you're adding another weapon for Brady uh, that Casey has to account for on defense. And an X factor for me too um, is I think look for Mike Evans to have a big game. I feel like he struggled with injuries all year. Um, there's been a lot of doubt as to whether or not he's one of, I guess, uh, one, one kind of one of the top wideouts, not top five or anything, but like, you know, top 10, top 15 in that, in that range. And there's been some doubt from his peers and from just people in general, just given this year he's been kind of quiet and last year uh, with injuries too. I mean, you have, we have to bring that up. So, I think he's out to prove something on this stage um, just to show everyone that he's he's in that category and kind of to, I guess, kind of put the world on notice. So uh, I think it's going to be a shootout. 
I think it's going to be an unbelievable game. I'm really, really excited. Um, like you, I don't really care who wins. I just want to see a good game. My prediction is I'll go Bucks 38, Chiefs 34. I think Brady realizes he's 43. Um, not that it stopped him at all, just given father time, but I still think he knows that to get to the Super Bowl, the amount of preparation you need is is huge. And the fact that he did it in his first season is remarkable, but he's still 43 years old. Um, he knows how much talent's around him. Who knows what the future holds? I think he's going to go out there, win Super Bowl MVP, and get ring number seven. That's, that's just crazy to say, seven. Seven, yeah. It's, it's, when I was uh, um, typing up my notes for today, looking at stuff, I was like, holy shit, like... <laughs> seven super bowls that's i mean obviously six right now but if he wins seven i mean there's no disputing who the best quarterback of all time is uh yeah i mean it's yeah it'll be it'll be an awesome game that it will that it will yeah so um no i mean before we move on to baseball um we got to talk about what's going on in la and detroit i mean the Rams trade for Matthew Stafford. I mean, he is finally out of Motor City, which uh, and he's going to uh, he's going to the City of Angels, which is significantly significantly an upgrade for him, not just in football but pretty much everywhere else in life. So, uh, well, uh, what are your thoughts on the trade? We know that um, LA kind of gave up a lot, but uh, um, yeah, what are your what are your initial thoughts on Stafford to the Rams? First off, the clear winner here is Matthew Stafford for getting out of Detroit. I think there's yeah. no dispute in that. Um, I know you and I are kind of along the same lines. I think had he been with another team most of his career, I, I think we'd be looking at him as a different player. Um, one of the best arm talents to come out of the draft in the last couple of decades. Um, so I, for, I'm just glad that he's out of Detroit, that's for sure. As for the trade itself, LA better win a Super Bowl in the next couple of years because they gave up a lot and they have no first round picks yeah. for like the year 2024. It's ridiculous. So they're going all in for it now. Um, I think a guy like Stafford with McVay, I, I think that should work out well. Mc, uh, McVay is a really offensive minded coach, so I think it'll work. They have weapons out there in LA. Him and Jared Goff had a relationship that I guess kind of deteriorated over the last year, year and a half or so. I will say this about Goff. I don't think he's a bad quarterback. He was in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. I think he's more than capable. Now, I will say this. Um, not a huge fan of the Lions' new head coach, uh, Dan Campbell. And I feel bad for Jared Goff, but I and I hope this doesn't happen. I think his career may go to die in Detroit. Just because the organization has not proven to be a solid foundation for a football team really since they came to be one in the NFL or it's been decades now, but especially over the last 10 years. I mean, they didn't do anything with Matthew Stafford. There's a reason that guys like Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson uh, decided to retire early. So what are they going to do for Jared Goff? I already think they made the wrong hire as a head coach. Again, I, I his watch his press conference if you haven't seen it. Look it up. It's kind of ridiculous. Well, I didn't didn't get you hyped up, man. That guy had me ready to run through a wall. I don't even know what he was. I don't even really understand what he was saying, but his energy was through the roof. See, it's interesting because initially that was my thought, but then as I thought more about it, and I talked to one of my buddies who plays for Baldwin Wallace's football team, friend of the show, Andrew Cregan, 
And I was like, don't you think that you would see right through that? Like, if you're a five or ten year vet who's 30 years old that's been in the league, wouldn't you? And he's like, yeah, like he said he would see through that. And he's a college athlete, much less guys that have been in the league forever. So I think it's a lot of BS. Now, listen, if he figures it out and he's good with X's and O's and establishing personal relationships, good on him. But I think the organization tried to make such a drastic turn off Matt Patricia, Matt Patricia that they hired essentially his opposite. And I think that could equally turn off players just as much as Patricia did. So we'll see. Um, I'd like to see Jared Goff have success there. But the Lions haven't proven to put together a capable roster in several years now. So I think potentially that's where Goff's career goes to die. Um, The Lions won it in terms of the fact that they got several first-round picks, but it's what you do with those picks. So... We'll see who the winner is after a while now. Both teams could end up screwing themselves, I guess. Um, the one clear winner as it stands today is Matthew Stafford. Yeah, I mean, um, as far as Dan Campbell goes, I don't really think it matters how good of a coach he is at the moment because that team is terrible. Like, in terms of their roster, they are just awful. Um, so I think it's all going to depend on, what, like you said, what they do with those picks and what they do um, to surround Goff with. I mean, because... I mean, we know like Goff was not the reason that LA went to the Super Bowl. I mean, he was more than capable of being a starter that year, but I mean, he's that defense with Todd Gurley and what he did in the MVP capable season. So uh, I've, I don't, I hope I'm rooting for Jared Goff, but I think it, it really just depends on the talent that um, they acquired through the draft because that's all that they have right now. So um, I, but like, I think like we mentioned a couple times, Matthew Stafford is the clear winner. I mean, he's going from Detroit to Los Angeles. I'll leave it at that With uh, in terms of location. Um, and I think it's definitely an upgrade from Goff, obviously, but they did give, they did give up a ton, L.A. So um, I think they're going to be dangerous next year because uh, I love Cam Akers, what he, kind of how he came on towards the end of the season. Uh, I think Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, and those guys. Uh, I'm blanking on Ty- oh Tyler Higby at tight end. Um, I think they have some solid weapons, and – I mean, probably just a lot more than Stafford had to work with in Detroit. So I think it'll be cool for him to play for a franchise. That's not a joke. Um, And the biggest, one of my biggest takeaways from this actually is it tells me that Carson Wentz is definitely going to go to the Colts. Um, I like during the, during kind of the end of the year when that stuff started to blow up with Jalen Hurts and um, everything in Philly, just the relationship was just broken between them and Carson Wentz. Um, initially I thought like, yeah, he, he'll probably, he seems like he'll go to, uh, Indianapolis once Rivers retires. But then I started thinking, I don't know, maybe Stafford can go there, but this tells me he's going to be the Colts uh, QB next year, which I guess is a conversation for another day. But, um, no, a, a lot of interesting, uh, I think it'll be some interesting storylines to work with going into next year. Don't you find it fascinating that you can make this trade during the week of the Super Bowl? Like we aren't even in the off season yet. Like yeah. what other sport can you actually do that? <laughs> yeah, and, and like, well, remember earlier in the postseason, um, what's his face? The uh, guy, I think he was a lineman for the Colts. Uh, we talked about it on one of our earlier shows uh, in the pro in the this postseason. He, well, remember, he was like the first guy to play for uh, two different teams in the same postseason. Like that's yeah. that's awesome. I mean, because his contract was done, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna go. Like, and it was literally during the playoffs, so they gotta love football. No, absolutely. But no, I think 
Stafford's the winner here. We'll see how everything else progresses. Yeah, it, it doesn't even matter if he it doesn't matter if he wins or I mean he's he's living in Los Angeles, man. I mean, it's I mean that's, that's I can't even like put into words how big of an upgrade that is from Detroit. So <laughs> enough with football. Um, we'll go to baseball actually. So at the conclusion of last week's show, um, it's kind of funny. Like right after we ended the show, we got news that the baseball hall of fame would not uh, that no, basically nobody got voted in this year. So like, like for the, yeah, this upcoming, like this ballot. So um, it happened literally right when our show last week ended. So we're going to lead with that. Um, I know Mike, we, you and I talked a little bit after last week, so we both got some thoughts on this, but I'll let you kind of take it away. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts on what happened last week? Yeah, I think, excuse me i think the baseball hall of fame is in a really interesting dilemma if you will and i don't know i guess i'll start it off as this to me i think it's the hardest hall of fame to get into as it should be in any hall of fame should be i mean it's not the hall of very good to quote one of my professors so um it definitely should be a hard place to get into now the fact that no one was voted in um personally it doesn't bother me a ton although somewhat argue it's a bad look for the sport the good thing is during the normal induction ceremony time, actually the class of 2020 will be honored, which featured Derek Jeter and Larry Walker, among others. So at least you have a filler there. They got kind of lucky in that regard. But I guess the question that this begs is, does the system for voting players into the Hall of Fame need to be fixed? And I would answer that as both yes and no. I think there are some things that do. I think that there are some that don't. So to give you context here, I believe it's somewhere in the ballpark of 170 to 190 something writers from the Baseball's Writer Association of America that vote these Hall of Famers in. So that's how they get in. There's no board or anything like that. It's baseball writers. Interestingly, this year, 14 blank ballots were submitted, um, which is the most of all time. And there were also two ballots that were Jeff Kent only. So I think personally, some writers should be stripped of the opportunity to vote. I mean, they've had guys, for example, I know a few years ago, they got rid of a ton that literally hadn't covered the game in like 10 or more years. So I think there are some that should be stripped of the opportunity. There's also been cases where guys haven't gotten 100%. Ken Griffey Jr. should have got 100% to get into the Hall of Fame. Derek Jeter should have. That's insane if he didn't get 100%. No, there's several dudes. You know they're a Hall of Famer. And I think part of that is that, um, so the system as it's set up where you can only choose 10 guys, and I think that some people, if they know they're a sure ballot Hall of Famer, what they do is they vote for someone else they want on because they're like, well, they get in. But like Ken Griffey definitely deserved 100%. So did several others. Um, a potential suggestion that I saw, one uh, I think it was a writer suggest, was just put yes or no next to each player check off whether they are or they're not, um, and then don't limit it to 10. Maybe that works, maybe not. Do you continue then to put the other people on the ballot the next year if they don't get in? I think that's where that gets a bit tricky, so I don't know if that's the best suggestion either. I do definitely think every ballot should be made public. The guy that didn't vote in Ken Griffey Jr. should be made public because it's BS. And if you're responsible for voting people in, then that re- part of that responsibility to me is that your vote should be public. People should know, and they should be able to know. I think they should have the right to know. So the process itself is pretty tricky. My suggestion is definitely don't limit it to only 10. I don't know if I like the yes or no, but um, regardless, it shouldn't be limited to that 10. So I think if you don't, then that yes or no matters a bit less. 
That way you can keep guys on the ballot for longer if they don't get in and then make every ballot public. Now, obviously the biggest question for the last 10 years has been the PED discussion and whether or not Bonds and Clemens deserve to get in. So they were both on the ninth year of their ballot. They did not get in. They actually, neither of them moved more than I believe a percentage point. So that means next year will be technically their last year on the ballot. Um, And then the veterans committee could put them in. What's interesting is next year, it's either next year or two years. I think it might be two years. It'll be Alex Rodriguez's first year on the ballot. He was known to have taken PEDs. And I actually think he'll get in because as we get younger voters in, he's really restored his image um, given the fact that he's gotten into baseball media and whether or not you agree with that is one thing, but I think that helps him a ton with the Hall of Fame voting in process. I will yeah, say this, but... I think just, to hop in, just to hop in with that, um, with a- with Aroid, uh, like, yeah, he has, I think in addition to getting into the like baseball media, just... I think the entertainment media in general too, like you'll see him at movie premieres, you'll see him hanging out with celebrities like outside of the sport. So I think it's more like more so it's just that whole public image, which is something I really want to get to um, after, after you're done with that, but just wanted to hop in. Yeah. And I will say this, just because someone takes PEDs, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're like a bad person. Like I don't think Barry Bonds is a bad person, but as far as this discussion, um, is pertain. I, I don't think that Bonds or Clemens or anyone that we know took PEDs should get in. Now, I will say a couple things on that. If you vote for Bonds and Clemens, you have to vote for Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire when he was on the ballot, he was taken off, and Manny Ramirez. Because to me, it's hypocritical to say that Bonds and Clemens deserve to be in because you assume that they were Hall of Famers before they took PEDs. But for Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Ramirez, while their numbers were too close, that had they not taken PDs, would they have gotten there? Well, had Bonds or Clemens not taken PDs, like what if they got hurt in their career and that helped them or something like that? If they have the numbers regardless, and your stance is guys who took PDs that were in that era because baseball um, was ravaged by them, they deserve to get in, then you have to vote all of them in. I, I know we might have our differences as to whether or not they should get in, and that's fine. Um, I think. People can respectfully disagree on that, but you can't vote for Bonds and Clemens and not Sosa McGuire and Ramirez. And I will say this as far as the discussion, I know I don't like players with PEDs in, but I do understand the argument saying that Bud Selig, who was the commissioner during um, that era, the PED era, he is in the Hall of Fame and you can't forget about that era. And as much as I hate to admit this, because baseball screwed up with the 1994 strike, PEDs in some ways rejuvenated their fan base and helped save the game. So maybe the solution with that is just create a separate wing that addresses that era. It should be addressed regardless in the museum because you can't you can't take away a period of time that was influential on the game, be it good or bad. So there needs to be a separate wing that addresses it as a whole. I almost feel like baseball tries to turn a blind eye to it. I think you just need to open up, acknowledge what happened, do they get in the Hall of Fame? Do they not? I don't know. Um, I guess you still leave that up to the writers and then the Veterans Committee. If they do, I don't like it, but it wouldn't stop me from going to the Baseball Hall of Fame and saying that it's still respectable because it is. But you have to address the error that happened. You have to address the fact that Major League Baseball knew what was going on before they decided to implement more forceful um, regulations with that. So I think you create a separate wing. And then I'll kind of transition you into what you want to get into, Andrew. The one other storyline of this Hall of Fame class was that 
Kurt Schilling, who was also on his ninth year on the ballot, did not get voted in. Um, he was the closest since there weren't any elected to being voted in. I believe he was 14 votes off, which was about 5% away from the 75% required. There's obviously been a big debate as to whether or not he should get in based off some off the field things. Um, and he actually, again, he continues to hurt his case, but he tweeted out that, or he sent them a letter, actually, the writers committee that he would like to be taken off the ballot for his 10th year, which would be next year. So I'll kind of let you take over that conversation because I do have thoughts on that as well, but I know that's a point you want to hit on Andrew. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I think you made a lot of really good points. Um, First I'll kind of start with in terms of the PED era. And I think of course there has to be a separate wing. Like you have to address it. You can't, like you said, you can't just ignore what really like that entire era, but you're just ignoring an entire era of sport really. And whether or not it saved the game, I mean, here's where, here's where I stand with the baseball hall of fame. I mean, so first I'll go to this, like the most recent news. Um, I like the idea of nobody getting voted in because if the voters didn't think anyone should get in, then don't feel pressure to vote anyone in. That's the way I see it. I mean, to me, yeah, like it's a testament to the honor of being in the hall. Um, Whereas a lot of times uh, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, there um, there are some guys that eh, you can debate whether you should have gotten in, but it seems like uh, this is a comparison. Like uh, it's a lot easier to get in there. So I think it upholds the honor that you want to um, preserve with being in the Hall of Fame. And so with that, I think I don't think Bonds or Clemens or anyone that took PDs should be in. Uh, I, I think in terms of maybe build like I think building a separate wing. I think that's, that's a really good idea because you're acknowledging it and you can have those players names, but I don't think you should just induct them and be like, yeah, these are hall of famers. Um, like, because it's, it's so ignorant because it completely contradicts that honor you're trying to preserve that comes with the hall of fame. So um, I think what's interesting too is uh, you touched on like right at the, right at the start of, the plan to induct uh, Larry Walker, Jeter, Marvin Miller, and Ted Simmons on July 25th, um, given all the COVID stuff, assuming stuff is slowed down. And I was talking to my brother Peter about this, and this to me is the most interesting thing, is you have this idea that you don't want to group beloved guys like Jeter or Marvin Miller with steroid users like Bonds and Clemens and or Alex Rodriguez, although I agree with you, he'll probably get in just based off his image. Or for that matter, um, racist, far-right conspiracy, white supremacist embracers like Kurt Schilling. Um, he wants his name off the ballot. <sighs> I'm all for it, man. I'll help you send the send the mail in. I mean, like uh, I'm all for keeping him out of the hall. He spreads hate, has really just damaged not only his reputation, but damaged the lives of, in terms of just that societal image um, of racism that we're really trying to move past. So uh I'm all for keeping him out of the hall. And I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I, I think as far as I think the PED, I mean, that's obviously the most intriguing argument that people want to have is whether or not like, oh, it's a part of the game. And I do agree it's a part of the game. And I think if you want to include them, I think it, it has to be in a separate hall, acknowledging that era of baseball, because I don't think you should provide them with, um, the honor of being a, I guess, quote unquote, typical hall of famer. Um, when what they did was cheating and I understand it saved the game, but 
I mean, I think acknowledge it in a way that says, yes, this saved the game. Are we proud of it? I mean, no. So like, um, I think that's the way to go. And like you, I don't think that like bonds, I'm not pinning bonds and Clemens as terrible people. I don't, I don't know how they are as people. I'm not that personable with them, but um, I think what they did was a violation of the rules of the game, obviously. And uh, I don't think they should have that honor, um, whether or not you thought they were Hall of Famers before it, because I mean, the, uh, obviously taking the, taking the steroids, taking the PEDs um, is what rose them to that level of success. So to me, if you're saying like, well, they were Hall of Famers beforehand, why does it even matter if they took the steroids? So um, I don't know. That's kind of where I stand with that um, as far as the PED era. What's interesting to note, too, is that David Ortiz will be on the ballot for the first time next year. And there was a lot of speculation about him having taken PEDs as well, but he's almost a surefire candidate to get in. I now would imagine he'll get in as the first ballot. Um, as far as Kurt Schilling, too, what's interesting about him, and yeah, he is, um, he definitely supports white supremacy, or at least his Twitter would suggest that. Um, what I'm curious actually to know is if he was as vocal about this during his playing days, because I honestly don't know, but considering the fact that he played with a ton of Latin American players and a ton of uh, black teammates as well, I'm just curious to see if he was vocal and how that was received in the clubhouse. Um, and he complains that it's because the writers don't like him, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's helped himself at all by doing this. And if you do want to implement that character clause, then I think you definitely have to take that into consideration, especially when, and it's interesting, and I don't think that a guy that's like that should get in at all regardless, but Kurt Schilling's not even a surefire Hall of Famer when it comes to numbers. Like, And I think that's something that's gotten lost on people now. If it was purely up to numbers, do I think he has the ones that get him to the Hall of Fame? Yes, I would say that he does, um, especially when you consider his postseason accolades. I think that's what would push him over the top. But you have to remember and look up his baseball reference page. He struggled a ton at the beginning of his career, especially in Philadelphia with the Phillies. His regular season stats, they really aren't like they aren't that great. It reminds me in a lot of ways of Madison Bumgarner in that in the regular season he was yes an average to above average pitcher in the postseasons where he heightened his game so I think what's interesting about Kurt Schilling it's not like we're talking about someone in the regard of Mike Trout in terms of being on the baseball field where clearly he'd get in solely based along that not that Trout obviously doesn't have any character flaws that we're talking about with uh, Schilling but if he did like what's interesting to me is just that Kurt Schilling from that standpoint um like, he doesn't even have those numbers. And, like, I get it. I don't think writers should uh, hold stigma against people. But he also wrote a shirt um, or wore a shirt. And I believe, if I remember correctly, it had a noose or something on it. And it said, hang the writers. So if those are the guys you're relying on to get you in the Hall of Fame and you do stuff like that on top of the um, uh, white supremacy type stuff that he's tweeted about or said in interviews and stuff like that. Like he's not even helping his own cause. So it's hard to feel bad for a guy that isn't even helping himself with that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in terms of like the hang the writers thing. I mean, not only is this guy literally referencing like the KKK and um, Jim Crow era and slavery. And I mean, the list goes on and on, but I mean, he also like was defending the terrorism at the Capitol and it's, I mean, if you're implementing the character clause, I mean, it shouldn't even be a conversation. And I don't know. I think 
you mentioned in terms of playing with a lot of Latin American players. I mean, he also played in Boston too, which as we know, like historically has been a city where um, discrimination, especially institutional discrimination has uh, really been held up high in the city. So um, obviously it's, it's progressed as like the rest of the country has progressed, but I don't know. It just makes you think about um, like uh, what that kind of dynamic was like uh, during his playing career in Boston too. That is true, but I would assume his values were set before. Like, I don't think they were influenced at all by Boston in that. Yeah, no, it, yeah. I'm not characterizing this. I'm saying I think, um, like, being in that city, like, uh, in the way that sports is held to them and combined with a lot of the racial stigma that's stigma that's associated with them, I think it's, uh, I don't know, it just, it just makes you think about, like, uh, what it was like in the locker room for. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah player, no, players don't really have that privilege. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, no, I don't think she'll actually get in the Hall of Fame. I guess we'll see if he's actually removed from the ballot. I just think it's kind of funny that he even wrote that letter anyways. But yeah. um, no, I mean, the Hall of Fame as a whole, I, I agree with you. I don't, to me, it's not bad that no one was voted in. Um, the PED situation will be tricky. And I think well, it will always be tricky until there is a decision finally made. That is infinite because I think now, even if Bonds and Clemens don't get in on the actual ballot, like the Veterans Committee could still put them in. So baseball mm-hmm. needs to address that. I, I would agree with you with a separate wing. Um, as far as the voting process, I mean, I already went over a few suggestions I have, but um, I don't think there's any shame in not voting anyone in. And it will still be fun to see like uh, Larry Walker is a very good player. And then Derek Jeter, the captain, obviously well-regarded in baseball history. Um, It'll still be a day to celebrate when that induction comes in July. Yeah. Jeter, Jeter will be sweet. Um, Just given, I mean, he's, it's kind of, I feel like he's just one of those guys that's just, it's like impossible to hate, you know, like kind of like Shaq in like a different sense. Like nobody hates Shaq. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know. I feel like it's hard to hate Jeter. Um, Unless there's something that like happened that I don't know about, then forget about what I'm saying. But I mean, as far as I know, he seems like a pretty cool dude. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So now we'll transition uh, to a different topic in baseball. There's been a lot of off-season news. So probably the biggest one, Nolan Arenado to the Cardinals. Um, this has been the uh, third time in the last year that a team has kind of traded its homegrown star on a Hall of Fame path, if you will. I know Lindor of the Mets and Mookie to LA was kind of a, I mean, there's differences in the trade, but it's still kind of interesting. So um, what are your thoughts on uh, this move for the Cardinals? Yeah, so not only did the Colorado Rockies trade Nolan Arenado, they also gave $50 million to the St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> to take him off their hands for Austin Gomber, John Torres, and maybe Jake Woodford as well as other prospects. And those of you listening are probably like, who the hell are those guys? Because not many people really follow prospects. And to be honest, I don't know who the hell those guys are either. And I like this quote. In the famous words of Trevor Plouffe, every prospect is a slapdick until he proves he's not. Um, You know what Arenado is when you're the Colorado Rockies. You know what you're trading him. It, it just it boggles my mind that they signed a guy and then continuously pissed him off to the point that he wanted out of there, so they traded him. Newsflash 2 He's the greatest Colorado Rocky ever. Yes, people would argue Larry Walker, although I would say he had a lot of good years in Montreal. And yeah, you can argue Todd Helton, who was obviously a career, uh, career-long career Rocky, and he did a great job at first base. Won't get in the Hall of Fame, but he's still a very good player. But 
Nolan Arenado has had the greatest potential of a Rocky. As you alluded to, he was homegrown. Um, Arenado, not Machado, not Rendon, not Chris Bryant, not Jose Ramirez, who, of course, I love being a Clevelander. Arenado is the best third baseman of this generation, both defensively because he is better than Machado and especially offensively. I mean, 235 home runs in eight seasons. Five all-star appearances. He's led the league in RBIs multiple times. Not to mention eight gold gloves, four of them being platinum, which if you don't know, that means you are the best fielder in your league in baseball, not just at your position. So I, it sucks that so many teams are doing stuff like this. Now, as far as the Cardinals and what they're getting, it will be interesting. Um, I don't think they've had a bat like this in their lineup since Albert Pujols, and that was back in 2011 was the last time he was there. Now... What is interesting, and I will say because they had Matt Holiday for a little while after Pujols, I would take Arenado over Holiday at that point in his career. Um, it is interesting to see how the Coors effect will play out. Um, admittedly, his numbers are lower on the road than they were at home in Colorado. In fan graphs, I was actually looking at projections today. They actually project him to get naturally worse to the point where in four years he'll only be hitting like 16 or 19 home runs a year. I don't think that's going to happen. I still think he's a great hitter. I think once he gets adjusted to a new division, playing in a new ballpark, and he gets comfortable this year, maybe it does take a year for him to get on track. But I still, like you said at the beginning, I think he's on a Hall of Fame track. Again, I think he's the best third baseman of this generation. And I would say the best since Adrian Beltre and Chipper Jones, obviously two dudes have who have retired in the last decade. So... I, for the Cardinals, this is great. I mean, uh, they just returned Adam Wainwright as well for a veteran presence on their pitching staff and Yadier Molina. They're headed by Jack Flaherty, who's the number one in the making and a future all-star. So I love this trade for the Cardinals, especially since they can afford him. Um, and obviously they got rid of Ozuna last offseason, so filling that bat um, with Arenado is great. Helps them defensively, but I don't know. Like, what are you, like if I'm a Rockies fan, I'm pissed off. Like, at least... At least with the Indians, like you knew the Lindor trade was going to come. They couldn't afford him. But you also know, and as frustrating as it can be, they're a well-run organization. They have good baseball ops people, and they will still continue to find talent. Like Colorado has been a joke since they made the World Series in 2007. They had a decent year that they made the wild card game and lost a couple of years ago. But they don't develop pitching in a ballpark that sucks to pitch at. Can't get that right. Um, they've had the offense for years. Maybe that is an effect of the ballpark. But... You're getting rid of this guy. Charlie Blackman's getting older. You do stuff like sign Ian Desmond to a four-year deal to play first base. Like, I don't know. I would be frustrated if I was a Rockies fan, but good for the Cardinals and getting the best third baseman in baseball. Yeah, I'd be pretty pissed too if I lived in Colorado. I mean, I, I mean, you really hit on all the points. And I, I think uh, what's interesting is you said that people will point to his numbers being worse on the road. I mean, I don't put any stock in that. I, I completely agree with what you said in terms of once he gets – adjusted to playing new division and playing in a uh, new ballpark i think you're going to see him kind of return to uh i mean the greatness that he has in being one of the best uh maybe the best third baseman of our generation so um i agree with i agree with all your points really and then i I don't mean to cut you off just off that point too historically if you look at most hitters it doesn't matter what ballpark they play in like their road numbers are going to be worse um yeses are a bit lower than some others that are probably in the hall of fame but they still aren't terrible and i would expect those to go up over the course of his remaining career so just wanted to add that in there as well you know i mean that that like that argument from people about his numbers being worse it just uh it sounds like 
Rockies fans trying to rationalize uh, what happened to their team. So um, <laughs> honestly, I mean, I, I don't know. But in terms of the state of the NL Central, I mean, what do you think? Because who knows where Bauer is going to go? You have the Cubs, you have the Brewers. But uh, what do you think? Um, like, what do you, where, do you, where do you have the state of the NL Central right now with regard to the Cardinals? I mean, it's about as wide open as a division as it can get. Now, I'll say this. Where the NL East is wide open, that's a bunch of good teams. Where the NL Central is wide open, I think the competition drops off a little bit. Um, it's I don't know. It's a weird division. So the Pirates are out of it. They're still building a young core. Um, Pittsburgh's my second favorite team, so I hope that they start to develop some guys. Excuse me. If you haven't heard of him, look up Cabrian Hayes. He is legit for the Pittsburgh Pirates at third base. So he'll be fun to watch. I don't think the Brewers have the pitching to compete in the playoffs. Um, Christian Yelich played terribly last year, but I would expect him to bounce back again. I don't take much stock in the statistics of a 60-game season, especially for guys that we knew know how to perform before that. So I don't know if they're in contention. I think the three teams that I look at are the Cincinnati Reds, the Chicago Cubs, and then the St. Louis Cardinals. Um the Cubs and the Reds are both looking to shed payroll. We've seen that by some of their offseason moves. The Reds traded their closer in Rassiel Iglesias. So I, I don't know. The Cubs got rid of Schwarber, Lester, signed with the Nationals. I don't think they have the pitching to compete. I mean, I guess the Cardinals by default won the division, but they still have their own flaws. I don't know. This might be a division where like the division winner wins 86 games. Again, the playoffs are a crapshoot and that anything can happen, but... The state of the NL Central is just bizarre. I don't think it's a great division, but it's kind of wide open in a sense, too. This helps the Cardinals, though. They might have put themselves just ahead of everyone else. It's like the NFC East of baseball. (laughs) Correct, except they should have at least a winning record. No, yeah, it'll be be fun to see. It'll be fun to see what happens. Um, Before we get to the news with the MLBPA rejecting the uh, league's proposal, uh, we want to highlight really quick, and I know you have some thoughts on um, Dustin Pedroia has retired. So it's a quick thing. I mean, AL MVP, two-time World Series champ, four-time gold glove, four-time all-star. More importantly, um, nothing but good things really said about him just from people he's played with and about him being uh, more of just a, an awesome friend in addition to being a terrific ball player. So uh, um, what, are your, what, are you, what, are you, what are your thoughts on Dustin Pedroia? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, he showed again that size doesn't matter in the sport. And he didn't cheat like Altuve um, did with the Astros. But again, conversation for another day. Um, No, I mean, he really did. He was widely regarded as the best second baseman in baseball. You know, I'd say from about 2008 when he won the MVP through maybe 2012, 2013, when you could argue it was Robinson Cano or Jose Altuve. Career, he has 299 batting average, 1,800, excuse me, uh, 1,805 hits. Um, it's a shame that his career ended the way it did. Uh, he just faced so many injuries. Machado kind of, maybe it was a dirty slide. Pedroia actually went on a rant saying that it wasn't, um, but he did kind of lead with the spikes. So that kind of hindered him for a while and he just hasn't been able to recover. But I think if you had to sum him up in one adjective, it's gritty. And I know that word is used a lot and I think it's overused to a point. Um, and I think some people think it's disrespectful, but it's not at all. Like he is literally like, Day in and day out, he would play when he could, uh, hustled all the time, good defender, great teammate. Um, I mean, he was the heart and soul of that organization from basically 2008 until the time he retired because I think, at least when he was around the club, like he's still the heart and soul, even if he's not out on the field every day. So 
He'll be beloved in Boston. His number will be retired. It should be retired. But again, it's unfortunate the way his career unfolded because I do think he was on the path towards being a Hall of Famer, but not a career to look down on by any means. So hopefully he enjoys retirement. I kind of hope he stays relevant within the game or does something with it, but I don't know what his interests are. But uh, sad to see him go. I, you know, I could actually, I could see him being, um, just given how long he's with Boston and his role with the organization, I could see him being like a player development guy or something um, mm-hmm. in the future with the team. I feel like that'd be really, I love it when players uh, that, like, not that they, like, players that are kind of from our generation kind of take on that role. So I think it's really good for getting young guys involved. And um, actually, one thing that now that I'm on that little topic about getting young guys involved, I want to highlight a move that I think the MLB nailed. Ken Griffey Jr. is the new senior oh, advisor for youth development. I mean, that is like when I saw actually I just saw it today. I didn't even know what happened. I think that I mean, you got something right with that. That is in terms of just developing guys and really just getting them interested in the game. I mean, the swag Griffey has and being one of the best players of all time. Um, personally, one of my like favorite baseball players. I know it's my brother's all time favorite player, too. So um, I love love that move. So I wanted to highlight that real quick. No, and actually, if I can jump off of that point, I think this is, from a, from the MLB office's standpoint, this and hiring Theo Epstein are two of the biggest moves I think they've made in years. I think Epstein, as young as he is, and um, he's kind of revolutionary, I think, with his thought process. We saw that with the Red Sox and Cubs. I think that'll transition well to the entertainment side of the game. How can we get fans interested? So I think that's great. But off your Griffey point, I mean, he's made it a point for years saying he wants to get more black athletes like involved in baseball and choosing baseball long term. And I think we do need to get more uh, youth involved, I would say. But I think it is a bit of a misnomer that like, I think there are a lot of um, African-American kids who choose to play baseball when they're younger, when everyone's playing, you know, three sports, basketball, football, baseball or track or what have you. I think when it comes to that decision time, they choose stuff like basketball and football as opposed to baseball. And I think Ken Griffey's trying to get them to, you know, choose baseball. And hopefully those numbers then end up rising in MLB. Again, this isn't an overnight process because if you're focusing on the youth, it's going to be several years until we see what they do. But uh, could they not have picked a more perfect guy? Like Ken Griffey is the right guy to lead this project. So I think long-term it bodes well for both youth baseball and the future of professional baseball. So Kudos to Major League Baseball for both those moves. Um, I think long-term it helps them out tremendously. Yeah, I I think just to conclude with that, like just the absolute perfect, perfect choice to lay the foundation of that. And honestly, I wish they did this earlier because um, for those of you that listened last week, we talked about the passing of Henry Henry Aaron, and um, that was a focal point of what he did too was in terms of trying to acquire more black athletes to the ML, to just take the interest in the sport of baseball. so, I mean, I mean, obviously we can only like envision of what it could have been like uh, if they made this move a little earlier. So um, nevertheless, I mean, still better late than never. So Griffey for that position is the absolute perfect choice. Um, but I, I digress with that. So um, the last last thing we want to talk about with regard to baseball is um, the MLB Players Association recently rejected the league's proposal to delay the season. So just to kind of give you a little uh, background about some details of it are um, so they're going to, they were looking to cut the games from 162 to 154, keep the expanded playoff, um, have the NLU's DH uh, and double headers are seven innings. So uh, I'm sure there's a little more to the, there's a lot more to the proposal, but that, those are just some key things that jumped out to me. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, first I do want to highlight too, because we got to sneak it in there. Fernando Tatis named MLB uh, the show cover athlete. So again, we got to get youth interest and he's a perfect dude for that. So really nailing it all across the board so far this offseason. But no, um, so you alluded to the proposal that the owners made. Uh, just a couple more details with that. Players would still be fully compensated, even though you'd lose about eight games. And there would be a delay to the start of the season. They would start in late April, and the playoffs would go into November. I don't know how far into November, but they'd go into November. So the MLBPA is likely to reject this, according to reports. So what does that mean? Well, actually, it's not bad. Um, that would mean the season will start on time, based off the schedule they currently have in place. They would play out their current schedule and spring training would start on time, which is supposed to be within the next two weeks. So it's actually not a bad thing Like for people that are scared. Oh, will we not have a season? Will we have a lockout? Uh, legally, they have to play, actually. Um, and I think the argument that it isn't safe or can't be done is invalid when they started the season with less info on COVID last year. And there are other leagues that are operating functionally. I mean, I think Every league has the money to do the proper uh, protocol and testing and stuff like that. And they've done a good job all across the board. So I think they're fine. I know one of the arguments from players is that like we can't delay the start of the season. Like they've already rented apartments and stuff like that, figured out family situations for going down to spring training. So I don't think it would be fair for them, for the owners to do this. Um, I think part of what they're trying to do, I mean, if you talk about a long-term standpoint, I think the owners are trying to nix some things or get some things done before their CBA that's expected to... This will probably be a battle between the MLB Players Association and the owners this offseason whenever the collective bargaining agreement is up and they're going to be renegotiating that. Um, the MLBPA is often considered the strongest players association in terms of unity and tough bargaining. I mean, ask a lot of players around the NFL. I know like Richard Sherman and JJ Watt were pretty pissed. Like they feel they got screwed on the last CBA because not enough guys were like invested in kind of holding their ground against the NFL. So MLB does do a good job with that. Hopefully though, it doesn't result in a lockout because I think that's the biggest concern for next season is the lockout. Um, but on the table with that, a lot of the things that you discussed with the proposal currently, full-time expanded playoffs, full-time DH in the um, National League, the uh, the biggest one or the biggest component from a report that I saw is that the players want more player revenue share on revenue splits. So I think that's the biggest thing they're going to argue for. And I would imagine that's what could potentially hold a lockout. Um, the other things are just bargaining chips for everything else. Uh, give some, take some, if you will. But yeah, so we should have an MLB season starting on time if they reject this. So this year, there shouldn't be a worry. What will be interesting is the CBA negotiations that will follow into next offseason. Yeah, I know the current CBD, uh, CBD, <laughs> I almost said CBD, uh, the current CBA is active, uh, I think until December 1st, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, no, and I think to your point about COVID, um, I think it'll be interesting just because of like the big thing, and we've seen this with uh, the NFL and um, with the NBA in terms of like fan capacity. I think it's interesting just because geographically how different states handle the virus, just given like um, yeah. the way that like the legislation's handled. So um, for teams that play in like Florida or Texas or California, so like different, although California's restrictions are a lot um, stricter than that of Texas and especially Florida. Um, but the, given those are three like major hotspots, uh, I think it'll be interesting, interesting to see like what that looks like just for each team, if that makes sense. So 
Um, still, still a ways away. Um, obviously like spring training is just now getting under kind of trying to get settled in. So it'll be cool to see what happens. No, I agree. And what's interesting with baseball too, is that they're an outdoor sport. So in the same way that football can hold a larger capacity than indoor ones like basketball, I would imagine they can also they're summer sports. So I think a lot of things over the next few months with the vaccines being distributed, we're going to enter summer again for the second time during this process, which is just weird to think about, but um it'll be interesting to see how things change i wouldn't be shocked if like uh fan capacity adjusts throughout the season and again like you said it's up to individual states and governors so that'll definitely be interesting fear not there should be a baseball season this year it should start on time so um i we'll see with the cba next offseason but no need to worry about that now so that's kind of what we got with baseball going on um a lot of stuff in the offseason this past week, that's for sure. But we're going to transition here to the NBA. Been a pretty electric start to the season. A lot of teams performing well. Uh, a lot of fun young talent, which we'll head on here soon. A lot of fun teams. But I guess the first thing, Andrew, I know the Nets just signed him on Shumpert. They've also had a few games now to play with their core three. So what are your thoughts on the Nets and that signing and just their overall state? Yeah, so super, super excited to talk hoops right now. Um, Iman Shumpert to the Nets. I love it. I think, I mean, I don't think they would have signed him if they didn't think he's got some, a little bit left in the tank. I mean, he does, you're not going to ask him to play offense. Like, just forget about that. Just have him just kind of strengthen that uh, prim, uh, perimeter defense. And right now, I mean, Bruce Brown is kind of like the only one who's taking that, the load of that role of like, okay, like you can score occasionally, like once they start double teaming, like Kyrie um, Durant or once Harden gets back, I know he's hurt right now, but mainly just like go out there, guard whoever the best guard is and just be that um, rock, be that rock for the team. So I love them getting Shumpert. Uh, I'm excited to see what he can bring, especially come postseason. Cause given, uh, I mean, we've seen him in Cleveland being here, what he brought to the Cavs and uh, like him and JR being those, uh, two kind of core defend, uh, defenders, little three and D, but uh, really excited for that. And as far as, as far as the start for the Nets too, I mean, it's really, nothing is really a surprise, I guess. I mean, uh, they've been winning a lot more. Like people were, uh, of course, like uh, mainstream, like media outlets saying once they lost to the Cavs, like, oh gosh, like what's going to happen? And it's kind of like, all right, just like give them a little bit of time. I mean, you're not getting as much practice time, uh, really a lot of teams aren't getting any practice time given COVID and all that stuff from the way that they're playing like back to backs and the way that they're traveling to different cities and everything. So um, you saw them kind of, it's going to come with time and uh, I not to get on too much of a tangent, but like, I think the criticism to Kyrie when he was out was a bit unwarranted, um, not justifying some of the COVID things that went on, but in terms of kind of how he uh, kind of what happened with the Capitol um, riots and, terrorist attack and given how invested he is in social justice issues came kind of taking time away for personal reasons. I don't think we should sit there and um, criticize and antagonize people for taking time off um, because they have personal things going on. Um, but I digress. I, I think in terms of the actual talent, I mean, this, the sky's the limit for this team. Uh, Kevin Durant is playing like an MVP, which uh, is really crazy. What's really crazy about that is, it's not necessarily surprising that he is back to like pulling up from wherever he wants, getting his own shots. What's surprising is like the athleticism that you see, like you'll see him take it in and like posterize guys or just the quickness because like 
tearing an Achilles used to be a career ending injury. And obviously with technology and um, the way that we've evolved, like medically, like that's changed, but a lot of guys don't really have that like balance and the spark they once had with that. And Durant looks like he literally hasn't missed a beat. So the nets are super exciting. Um, and uh, we'll see if what Shumpert brings to them and we'll see if they're able to get like a JaVale McGee or someone to strengthen up uh, um, down low because Reggie Perry does, does not have it. So, uh, and he's, he's, he's very young though too. So a lot of excitement with the nets. No, yeah, I think uh, Amon Shumpert was a great signing because it's a low risk, uh, medium reward, I guess, if you will, uh, because he's an NBA vet. If he does have anything to bring to the table, like you said, defensively, that's huge for them. Um, and then people forget, I mean, he does have title experience and he was actually on that Cavs team with Kyrie. So I think there's some chemistry there with that. I think with the Nets, their their offense is doing what it should do. I mean, right now they're on pace to score 122 points per game, which is the highest or would be the highest in league history. However, on defense, they're on pace to average 119 points per game given up, which is also on pace to be the highest. So that's where my concern lies with the Nets. The Nets are going to score. They have three dudes that are capable of scoring 30 on any, any given night and Joe Harris, who's lethal from three. Um, it's a shame that they don't have Spencer Dinwiddie healthy because that would just make them even more lethal. But I, I think with the Nets, my concern again is defense. Right now, I'd still take the Celtics out of the East, although the Nets could obviously make it there. Um, I just think it'll be interesting to see if they can tighten the clamps, especially after the um, All-Star break. I know we won't have the game, but they'll still have the break. Uh, but if they can head into the playoffs getting that average down, even if it's to like 105, 110, I mean, they can still outscore just about anyone. Uh, but I think defensively is where they're going to have to improve if they do want to make a title run. Here's the thing with the Nets, though, um, in terms of we know they're going to give up points, but we also know they're going to score like out the wazoo. But like if they can, they're going to score with anybody and they're, they're going to really work to outscore anybody. Like That's how they're going to win games. And that's what we know. But the thing is, if they can, if they can keep it close when they play against like the Milwaukee's or like um, out west, like the different LA teams or uh, Utah's been playing well, Denver, Portland, those guys, like just better teams. If they, if it's a close game, the last five six minutes, I mean, they are a tough team to beat because, as with like a lot of offensive superstars, like with Kyrie, Harden, we see it with Curry a lot, um, Dame Lillard, a lot of those guys. Um, that are kind of criticized for not playing, I guess, like elite defense. They're all still like how it works is like with them is you'll see those offensive superstars play defense, like situational defense in the heat, of, like in the really like the heat of the moment towards like back end of game. So if they can, if it's a close game within the first, within the last like five to six minutes, they are so hard to beat just because of you can't double anybody because you can't leave Joe Harris open on the wing, especially, I mean, he just dropped, um, we're recording right now on a, on a Monday last night, they played um, Washington. He had like 30. Um, when he gets going, it's, he's ridiculous. Uh, Kyrie, uh, we know about Kyrie Durant and Harden. You can't be doubling them because you're leaving people open. So Jeff Green spaces it out too. So they're, they're going to be a tough team to beat down the stretch of games is what I've noticed so far. No, yeah, and I would imagine as they get chemistry, they're going to be even more lethal offensively down the stretch. Now, as we cross the bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan, <laughs> city organizations earlier in the show with the Detroit Lions, we have the New York Knicks, 
uh, who actually have put together a decent season so far. I like their young core players at the moment, but they are rumored to be pursuing Zach Levine, who I know is one of your favorite players, Andrew. So what do you got for me on that? Yeah, so like with the Knicks in general, I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Like they're actually presentable for the first time in um, a long, long time. So uh, they're like right now, I think they're sitting uh, like eighth or ninth or but I think they might, I think eighth or like right yeah, yeah, nine and eleven. Yeah, so like, um, I mean, they're looking like a team that could try to push for a playing spot. Um, given, I mean, it's very early. We're not even at the All Star break, but um, right now, like, they're looking presentable, and that's the first time we can say that about the Knicks in a really long time, which is exciting for people in New York that are still Knicks fans. I don't know if they're still there with uh, <laughs> with what Brooklyn's got going on, but. Um, nevertheless, I mean, uh, Tom Thibodeau has them playing defense. Julius Randle's looking like an all-star. Uh, and so with Zach Levine, you, you alluded, he, I mean, he is one of my favorite players just because he's someone that I think is severely underrated in terms of the dude could, he could average 27 with his, like in his sleep. Um, and I think with the Knicks, like, uh, we'll see, they're not, they're definitely not the only team that's pursuing Zach Levine. I mean, his name has been in trade rumors the last like two years. But they do have like the third worst offense. Um, they have, I think they're pushing for like a top five, top six defense right now. So they they play great defense. Defenses, I mean, it's effort. All these guys can play. So, but they do have the third worst offense, third worst effective field goal percentage. And adding a guy in Levine, who, like I mentioned, could average twenty seven in his sleep, would make them uh, a play. Like, would make them a playing team in my book. So, uh, if you were to pair him with. Uh, a couple of young guys, which I'll get to one of them actually in our next little segment, but um, it's exciting. We'll, we'll see if uh, you can get out of Chicago, but I mean, Chicago's they, they've, they've won, they've won a couple of last uh, over the last week. So I don't know, man, it's, it, I, I love talking like early season basketball. Cause like we can actually talk Knicks and bulls and calves and stuff. And I don't know, it's, you never know what's going to happen down like as the season gets more into it, but it's exciting. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, Thibodeau effect, of course. That's why their defense yeah. is where it is. But I, I think the only thing, if they get Levine, I don't want them to break up that young core because I think R.J. Barrett's actually developed into a pretty good player. Obi Toppin's shown potential. Um, I'm blanking on someone. Mitchell Robinson, of course, is doing his thing. But I, I think just don't blow up the young core if you're going to go after him. Actually, I- another uh, – or go ahead. Yeah, no, just just to hop in with that, I I think if they were to deal for Levine, I think the people, I think the guys that are going to be on the table, I think R.J. Barrett uh, is they consider him almost an untouchable, so like reasonably so because uh, I mean the way that he's kind of just shown signs of improvement from last year to this, this year is reasonably so. Uh, I don't think they would want to deal Julius Randle the way he's playing. I think guys like. Uh, Mitchell Robinson, maybe Kevin Knox, although I don't know who wants Kevin Knox right now. Like the guys along that caliber, along with maybe some draft picks, are probably what would be uh, involved in a trade like that. Well, the Bulls are known to make bad trades. Um, (laughs) But uh, also, too, I think the one name that I'm really interested in as we get to the trade block is Bradley Beal, because his body language has not been great in Washington. He'd be a huge asset to teams. So we'll see with him as well. Yeah, man, he looked pissed last night against like at, in moments in Brooklyn. I mean, he, him and Westbrook, they they squeezed out a win towards the end. But did, did you look at his body language and just at different moments? He looks, I mean, reasonably so. He looks really, just really, really upset. But 
I don't know. Washington is a weird case in itself. They're, to me, they've been the most disappointing team so far, but they have had a lot of guys on and off of COVID lists and different injuries. Um, I really hope they can just get it together. Scott Brooks has got to get his shit together. He's, I mean, he's not a very good coach. Um, that's another topic for another day, but I don't know, man. Washington is, I really hope they get stuff together because they could be, it could be a, uh, it could be an upsetting first round matchup, I think, in the playoffs for, uh, like a Brooklyn or a Milwaukee, or they can give them a couple games, I think, just given the star power they have. I guess we'll see. Obviously, a lot of that will depend on whether or not Bradley Beal is still there. And then kind of to close out our NBA segment here, um, rookies, how about it? I think in any sport, um, kids just come into the league and like they aren't afraid, whereas maybe they used to be or like uh, older guys would intimidate them more, but – there's been some guys that have been balling this season that were in last year's draft, which to many people was kind of wide open. So, Andrew, I know you got a list of your top five rookies so far this season. Who are they? Yeah, I mean, talk about not being afraid. I mean, you got to lead with number one, LaMelo Ball. I mean, coming Better off a career. Conzo. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So, coming off a career high, 27 points against Drew Holiday and the Bucks, which – that is not a light. That's not something you take lightly. I mean, Drew Holiday is someone that is, I mean, I would probably say the best defensive guard in the whole league. And uh, guys like Dame Lillard, who have gone up against him, would certainly agree. And um, in turn, so you have him coming off career at 27. And the thing with LaMelo, too, like his ability to score effortlessly at moments is what makes him different from Lonzo. You, you, you just met, you mentioned Lonzo. I mean, if comparing those two, it's, it's kind of interesting because, like, with you lose defense with LaMelo in exchange for that effortless offense at moments. When com- And when comparing the two in a league where guard-oriented offense outweighs the importance of guard-oriented defense, in my opinion, for budding stars, just given the like just the pace of the league and what's kind of valued. So, um, Although I do think Lonzo gets way too much hate, I think he's still a very good – I think he's still a good player. He's still really young too, so I'm not going to get in my soapbox, but – um, LaMelo, I mean, he's, he's just so fun to watch. That whole Hornets team is fun to watch. He already has some of the best vision in the, in the league. I'll say, I mean, his IQ is insane. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned not being afraid I'm talking about his development from playing overseas, playing against professionals from which is what a lot of young guys do now. Um, just with AAU and all this stuff. So, um, that Charlotte system's perfect for him. Uh, he has fun out there and, he was my preseason pick for rookie of the year, and I mean, it's he's looking great right now. So uh, he's my number one. No, yeah, and I was kidding. With I, I still think Lonzo is solid. I mean, yeah. doing all right. Although I guess he might get traded too. Who the hell knows? Um, but no, I, I think I couldn't agree more with Lonzo. People were getting on him for not scoring points in his first game. Relax, come on. He's getting opportunities to start now. He's gonna do his thing. Um. He's still young. I would expect him to improve defensively but from an offensive standpoint. Like some of the passes he made are just ridiculous. So Charlotte's an interesting team. Michael Jordan may have actually nailed the draft for the first time since he's owned them. So, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely missed on a lot of occasions. But, hey, I mean, you got to hit eventually. So Who's uh, counting? No. <laughs> um, yeah, so number two, uh, James Wiseman. I mean – yeah, we knew how athletic he was. I mean, seven six wingspan going into going into the draft, and really in high school, I mean, one of those like top ranked guys. And the thing to me that stands out to me when I watch him with Golden State is like his progression as a shooter is really impressive. Like the ability to step out and hit a fifteen footer when need be, and 
Um, I mean, he's he's playing with uh, like Curry, who's a terrific passer in his in his own right too. So it helps having guys that are able to like set you up. So um, just hit being able to step out and hit some jumpers. He has a clean looking stroke. He runs the floor too, like a modern big needs to um, to survive in like the league right now, which will be important for his development. He's averaging twelve and six, a little over a block a game, um, and he, he's only going to get better. So Wiseman's my number two. No, that dude's a stud, and I mean, I thought that when he was in the draft, and I think the thing people forget is, like, the Warriors run a complex offense, so he's working with offensive-minded geniuses. I can only imagine that Curry, uh, Draymond, and Kerr will just improve his game offensively. Defensively, I think he's shown flashes, too, but 10 years ago, when the league was more structured around centers, he would have been the clear number one, and I think he's going to fit perfect with this Warriors team if they decide to keep him long-term. And he has a decent touch from uh, that I think he'll improve from outside of the paint. So, no, I like your first two. Yeah, okay, so now number three. Um, this is the guy that I loved in the draft, and I'm still shocked he fell so far. Tyrese Halliburton for the Kings. Oh, my gosh, man. he He's another guy like LaMelo whose IQ is really just like years, I feel like, ahead of his, uh, his game. You could, I mean, right next to LaMelo, he was second-best passer in the draft, and just plays with a lot of maturity, and he spent an extra year at Iowa State, and um, it shows, I feel like, just in his game and his approach. Seems like a great teammate, too, like just all of his pre-draft interviews and um, the way that he messes with guys so far. Um, still would like to see some more out of the Kings, although, I mean, I don't know. Who knows what, what's going to go on in Sacramento, but I don't know. He's, like I mentioned, I think the obvious steal of the draft. Um, right now he's top five in scoring, assists, shooting, and three-point percentage amongst rookies, so – He's going to be a core, core part of the uh, the Kings going forward. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of I've been saying for years the Kings are going to make the playoffs, so I'm done. I'm done being yeah. emotionally hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the King. Kings aren't going to make the playoffs this year, but yeah, I don't know. They they, they have they have fun guys to watch. I mean, your your guy Buddy. I know you like Buddy Heald, De'Aaron Fox, um, Marvin Bagley, whose dad wants him to be traded, which I still think is hilarious, but. Um, no, who knows what, you know what we need to do, Andrew? Okay, mm-hmm. Kings trade everyone, get assets, and then move the players we like to different teams so that we can root for them again. So, we're gonna move Darren Fox to New Orleans. That's gonna work, okay? Yeah, him and Zion talk about a pick and roll right there. That would be cool, play. that'd be good. Yeah, okay, there we got we got that. Uh, Buddy Heald, we're actually gonna move to Portland because you know they could use another three and D type of guy, so we got Buddy Heald going over there. Marvin Bagley, stud in his own right. We're going to move him to... Um, I don't know about Bagley is stud in his own right. He, he, he's got some work. Capable of playing in the league. Capable of playing in the league. Yeah, capable, um, yeah, there you go. Man, who could we move him to? Marvin Bagley, you might have to bite the bullet on this one and stay in Sacramento. Sorry, buddy. And Tyrese Halliburton, mean? we already got to get you out of there because they're the kings. So we're going to... Well, or do what? We'll just let's just move the whole team to Seattle, man. I mean, I don't care that they just built a new arena. Like, I don't really care. Just set, just move them to Seattle. Seattle needs a team. Sacramento. Yeah, but you got you got to change the ownership and the culture. Like, we need these guys to be out of a bad situation because we love well, them. Well, then just fire everybody and then move them to Seattle. <laughs> You can't fire the owner. That's the only problem. You know what we need to do? We need to have like a backers club, not for the Kings, but players of the Kings. And then when they move on, we still root for them when they move on. Because they're the real Kings in this situation. We We can go to BW for some funding for the club. 
No. No. BW's going to use that money to paint Trestle Street. Or fix the cyber um, stuff that's going on right now. <laughs> Which is why I'm using my hotspot. But yeah. <laughs> Everything comes full circle. Sports. All right. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get my last two out of the way. Um, number four is we talked about the Knicks. This guy is one of the brightest spots in the Knicks. I know uh, Wob on uh, Twitter loves him. Emmanuel quickly. Man, this guy should be starting. He scored 25 or more in three of his last four games. And I swear to God, every time I watch the Knicks, he shoots a floater like 90% of the time, which I love because he's uh, it's just great. It's like, uh, I don't know, man. He's just he's he's just a baller. He's uh, And for the Knicks, like, people were pissed that they didn't get a guard in uh, this past draft that they wanted uh, Tyrese Halliburton. But, uh, hey, I mean, Emmanuel quickly, he's – He's, he's looking looking really, really good so far. So um, hopefully he gets a start, and I like what I see from him. Yeah, I turned on the Cavs game the other night when they were playing the Knicks, and this dude was putting up points and talking trash. I was like, who the heck is this dude? But I, dude, I John, part of that John Calipari, Kentucky um, filter like filter system with guys coming, uh, like top-ranked guys just going in and out, and yeah, he's, he's balling. So number five uh, – this was tough because there's two guys, and I'll just I won't like talk in depth about the honorable mention I had because you can move him to number five and vice versa. But I went with Cole Anthony, uh, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. The Magic. It, yeah, I mean he was uh, someone who like when he started at UNC like before injuries and just kind of different areas of his game were a little uncertain. I mean he was projected to be like a top five pick when he first started and. Um, I thought the Magic got a great steal with him just because of his ability to score. And right now, what's impressive is how gracefully he's kind of slid into that starting role with um, Markel Fultz getting hurt, which still sucks. I mean, he was really starting to kind of put things together, so I wish him a speedy recovery. But nevertheless, I mean, Cole Anthony, he's – I want to see more consistency with his scoring, but he also doesn't really need to do that on the Magic right now. Like, he's kind of just being asked to facilitate and – um I don't know, like score where where necessary and where he can, and he's doing a great job in, in his role right now. And uh, great facilitator, great good rebounder too for his size, and um, in a good place with the Magic. So uh, he's only going to learn and develop more. But like what he's seeing, and my honorable mention where I could uh you could flip these guys, uh, Anthony Edwards, who um, was taken number one, although there wasn't like a clear number one. Um, still, I, th- I him putting him at like honorable mention or number five is no knock on no knock on him at all. I, I love his game. Uh, I think if it's all about the attitude for him, as we've seen is it, does he have the motivation to play and be great? Cause he certainly like physically has all the tools and uh, is really just a great, he's, he's been putting up great numbers over the last week. Uh, I think averaging close to like 16 or 17 a game over the last week. And uh no, I like what you see. What I see from him, it just sucks because Carl Anthony Towns, Minnesota's really missing him, and they're just a mess. Somehow the Cavs lost to them last night, which we'll get to with Cleveland sports. But no, uh, I think as Minnesota kind of gets, kind of gets their things together, I think um, Anthony Edwards, we're going to see him progress a ton. There is one omission I see on your list, Andrew, and I'm going to ask you who they are by presenting a trivia question. Mm-hmm. Who is the NBA's rookie leader in minutes per game? Do you know? Minutes per game. Uh, Isaac Okoro. He is, and he should be on this list. I would replace replace him with quickly. I'd slide him up to three. Now, folks might be like, 
Well, he only averages eight points per game. Listen, I think I came out after uh, the season started and I said I think he's the most NBA-ready player out of the draft. I'll take that off a little bit because I think you could argue LaMelo for that. Um, But I will say this about Okoro. Defensively, I think he's been a stud so far. I think offensively, he's actually... I think he's just trying to get comfortable within that offense, and I think he's becoming a bit more aggressive, which I like to see. Um, but I think the load of minutes that he's shouldering, he beat out Shetty Osman and, um, well, Kevin Porter, Porter kind of beat himself out of that starting job before he got traded. So I guess it was just Shetty. But, no, he, he beat him out for that job. And I just think on that team he's been a defensive staple. I think he's a stud. And I think – Three years down the line, I genuinely see him as a 20 points per game, best defensive dude on the court type of player. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm i not disagreeing with anything you said. I um, I mean, you know, we talked right after the Cavs drafted him. He was really who I wanted. I wanted either him, Denny Atvia, or not really just those two guys. I wasn't really too sold in Obi Toppin, but no, either him or Denny Atvia. And I'm really glad they took a curl. And like, uh, no, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I just... And him not being on this list isn't a knock on him at all. I just think um, Lamelo, James Wiseman, Tyrese, uh, just the way Emmanuel quickly has been playing over the last week is really impressive. And then Coy Anthony, Anthony Edwards. I mean, those are all really those are all really good young players. But my comparison for Akuro, um, especially given that I love that he starts now too. I was really worried that he wouldn't that they would try to put Chetty in that starting spot and um, not knocking Chetty or anything, but he. Or Kuro is just in terms of defensively balancing out Sexton and Garland, some of their limitations, I think. Um, he's great. And my comparison for him is, I said this out of the draft, is if he develops offensively, is Jalen Brown, um, who we've seen now. I mean, he was that defensive cornerstone for the Celtics, like on the wing uh, when he first came in. And he's another another really young guy, but he's taken his game to heights that are beyond what people thought he would be coming out of Cal. So, that's my comparison for Okuro, and um, no, I'm, I'm right with you. I, I think he's going to be really good, um, but as of now, um, those were my top five, or I guess kind of six, because Edwards was the honorable mention. Well, I guess if we're talking about Okuro, we might as well transition to everyone's favorite segment, Cleveland Sports. Cleveland Sports, all right. <laughs> we had a, oh, I think this, should it be called Catching Up on Cleveland? Yeah, we can do that. We can make that. We can put that in the uh, Spotify and Apple Music description or something. How about that, folks? But while we are on the subject of the Cavs, um, they're hanging on to the seventh seed right now. They're 9-11. They're a game up, or excuse me, they're tied with the Knicks. They're a half game up on, I believe, and I'm blanking on the team. I don't think it's the Magic. Oh, well. They're half game up on whoever it is that's in the ninth seed right now, so they are competing for a playoff spot. There's been a lot of growth from this team and individual players this year. They did lose to Minnesota last night, unfortunately. But I don't know. My biggest question for me is whether or not they'll trade Andre Drummond and JaVale McGee. I think McGee will definitely be gone. Drummond's the bigger question. Um, but right now, they're I know they've lost a couple in a row, but their offense is finally starting to score again, which is good to see. And I just like the progression I've seen from them so far this season. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. A couple of just really bad losses against the Knicks and the T-Wolves. Um, they got killed by the Knicks, uh, but and I know they didn't get killed by Minnesota, but I don't know, man. That, that team is not good. Like, you don't even have Nas Reed playing, and, I mean, Drummond should go out there and just put up monster numbers against Ed Davis, who um, is surprisingly still in the league. And, 
I don't know, just two disappointing losses with that. But then, on the other hand, they played L.A. really tough last week, especially kind of coming back uh, down the stretch. But some idiot in the stands, like, uh, pissed off LeBron. And uh, I think someone on the, someone in the Cavs organization who knew LeBron said something, like, before the fourth quarter where he went off. And, yeah, that, that game, like, as soon as you saw LeBron kind of look back and say something, you're like, okay, this game's over. But, no, I mean uh, – Although we had a couple tough losses, uh, still it's exciting. Um, right now we're right now we're a playoff team statistically. So, um, and the biggest thing too is uh, Darius Garland's back in the starting lineup, which I love love his game, and I think having him with Sexton um, back, kind of trying to get back to how we were before everyone got hurt, um, is huge. So it'll see. I, I do I expect them to get the deal to Vale McGee um, sometime over the next couple of weeks, I think, or sometime just soon. I don't, I don't see him staying on the roster. No, it'll be interesting definitely to track this team's progression. Hopefully they're at least in contention, you know, with a month left or so, but we'll see with that. Across the street, the Indians made their best signing of the offseason, getting Eddie Rosario. Um, I think this is a huge signing. He isn't the biggest name in baseball, but – I think it's pretty big to have him in the middle of the lineup for Cleveland. He provides consistency on offense. Uh, take away again that COVID year. 2017, he hit 290. 2018, 288. And 276 in 2019. So it's a one-year, $8 million deal. Kind of low risk, high reward. Again, hopefully he's a staple in that lineup. Um, he always killed Cleveland when he was playing with the Minnesota Twins. So it'll be nice to have him on our side this time. Never gives up in that bat. So... I like it. I like it. A solid move. Yeah, some excitement after losing Lindor is always good. Um, but folks, whose list people that have listened are listening right now, we have breaking news on the Off the Wall podcast, not sport Actually, related. Uh, Baldwin Wallace University, where we go to school, just restored their Wi-Fi. So, Mike, you don't have to use your hotspot anymore after this. What if the hackers sent that email? Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> well, let's let's hope let's hope that's not the case. Yeah, I don't know. The network will probably crash again. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, That's our show for today. Uh, As always, if you want to hit us up on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at offthewall underscore pod. Always appreciate it. Um, And thanks for listening, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. It's to get you to know me within 16 bars. That's the hardest thing. Who is K-Dot?